Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 21, Deuteronomy chapter 16, continued. Well, last week we ended by discussing some fascinating details about Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, respectively called Pesach and uh, Matzah in Hebrew. Now, we're going to continue that today, and we won't even fully finish Deuteronomy 16 until next time. There's a couple of reasons that we're going to carefully go over the laws concerning these biblical feasts. First, because the way that some Jews and Christians celebrate those holy days today is not necessarily scripturally accurate. And second, is because This was the series of festivals during which Jesus, Yeshua HaMashiach, celebrated a final meal with his disciples. He was betrayed and arrested, tried and executed, was buried and arose from the dead. This was the climax of what Yeshua had come for in the first place. And it will remain the most important part of his earthly ministry until he comes again for the next stage in God's redemption process. Now I told you last time that I wanted you to think about what we went over in discussing Passover, at least partially, because it might challenge what you thought you knew concerning those holy days. Now, what we're going to discuss this evening is rather technical. So stay focused. I also want to say right up front that while I cannot, nor can anyone else, be 100% certain of the timeline I will present to you, it does fit both the scriptural and the traditional understanding for Jesus' era. So while I'm fully prepared to defend it, understand that I'm not saying that it's impossible for another scenario to be equally plausible. However, unless we throw out the three nights in the tomb statements, what is not possible is that Yeshua was crucified on the sixth day of the week, Friday in modern terminology. No matter how you slice it, Friday night time plus Saturday night time with the absolute biblical assurance we have of the first day of the week discovery of the missing body, which we equate to Sunday morning, that doesn't add up to three nights. Now there is one other scenario that is a slight possibility. And it is that everything I lay out to you today simply backs up by one day. But I don't really accept it because that possibility only occurs if the protocols of Passover week were done according to the traditions espoused by the Pharisees of that day. If things were done in accordance with the strictest traditions of the Pharisees of that era, then my timeline would indeed have to back up one day. But this is really unlikely. And I say 
that it's as near to impossible as you can get. Because the Sadducees controlled the priesthood in Jesus' day. And they followed the Leviticus 23 injunction that first fruits was to take place on the first day after the seventh day Sabbath. Now I'm going to show you as we go along tonight why that is important. Now let's briefly review before we start with some new material so that we can all begin with the same understanding. There is a series of three springtime biblical feasts uh, that begin on the first month of the Jewish religious calendar year, the month of Aviv. Now, Aviv is the original Hebrew name for this month that after the Babylonian exile also started to be called by its Babylonian name, Nisan. Okay. Now, while it is said that the biblical feasts revolve around an agricultural motif, the reality is that neither Passover uh, nor unleavened bread is about farming or food production. Okay. Passover is a commemoration of the day that the Lord smote Egypt by killing all firstborns, meaning firstborn sons, okay, in order to force Pharaoh to release Israel from his grip. Yehovah ordered that all who wish to trust in him can avoid this death by sacrificing a yearling lamb, a ram actually, and then brushing its blood onto the doorposts of their homes. Now, while I pointed out several elements of this process that we don't typically take into consideration, the one that I'd like you to keep in mind today is that the only people in Egypt that were ever at risk of death were the firstborns. Okay. Now, unleavened bread, matzah, is the second of the group of three springtime festivals, and it commemorates the day, the first day of it, commemorates the day that Israel actually began its march out of Egypt. Now, while Passover is a one-day event, matzah is a seven-day event that begins the day immediately following Passover. Now, because in Egypt, this event happened suddenly, and Israel had to leave immediately, there was no time for the Hebrews to prepare their staple food, bread, in their normal way by adding some yeast, letting it rise, and then baking it. Okay. So the Jews were required to prepare a kind of bread that did not utilize yeast or leavening. This bread, matzah, wasn't even baked. Okay? It was prepared by being placed on a griddle to cook in, an open, in the open air, similar to the way that we cook pancakes. Now, the final festival of the group is three is called Bikurim, right? or first fruits. This occurs the day following, immediately following the first day of matzah. First day of matzah, we have Passover, 
First day of matzah, first fruits. So we have each festival beginning in their turn over the 14th, 15th, 16th of Aviv or Nisan. The final day of the festival is the 21st of Aviv. And then we're going to talk more about first fruits shortly. Now the first part of chapter 16 of Deuteronomy is really meant to discuss the three pilgrimage festivals. That is, those three special ones out of the seven biblical feasts in which it is required that all Hebrew males make a journey to the tabernacle later on the temple, and there they make a sacrifice. So this group of three springtime festivals I've been teaching you about, that's not the same thing as the three pilgrimage festivals. However, one of these three springtime festivals is a pilgrimage festival. The Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is a pilgrimage festival. And because of the way the three springtime festivals happen in immediate succession, the result was that the Jewish pilgrims would be present at the central sanctuary for all three of the springtime feasts. Now, another important feature of the festivals is that God added some special Sabbath days to them. Now, there were two kinds, are two kinds, of biblical Sabbaths. The regular weekly seventh day Sabbath that we're all familiar with and the festival, also called high or great Sabbaths, that were part of the biblical festivals. In the series of three of the three spring feasts, the first day of the seven-day festival of matzah was one of those added special Sabbaths, as was the final day um, of the seven days of matzah. The beginning day and the final day were these special added Sabbaths. So to be clear, we have Passover on the 14th of, uh, of Aviv. Right. The next day is the first day of Matzah, which means that it's, it's got a special Sabbath associated with it. Then the next day after that is first fruits. Now let me stop and point out something very important right here. Okay. While the modern Hebrew calendar will indeed always show Abid the 16th as first fruits, that is not the biblical practice. And it was not the tradition as practiced while the temple still stood. Okay? In reality, while the Torah does specify Aviv 14th as Pesach, Passover, and Aviv 15th as the first day of uh, Matzah, the Torah does not specify Aviv 16th as first fruits. Rather, it says this about the day of first fruits in Leviticus 23, um, 10 and 11. Don't turn there, I'll just read it to you. 
Say to the people of Israel, when you come into the land which I give you and reap its harvest, and you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord that you may find acceptance on the morrow after the Sabbath. The priest shall wave it. So according to the Torah, Passover was always on Aviv the 14th, Matzah the first day always on the 15th, then there was a lull until the seventh day Shabbat came around, and then on the following day would be first fruits. That's biblically how it's supposed to happen. Okay. This was the way the Sadducees practiced it. And since this ceremony had to occur at the temple and be performed by the priests, what the Pharisees or the Galileans or anyone else thought about it, what they thought about how and when and what order to perform this ritual, it just didn't matter. Because the Sadducees controlled the priesthood and everything that went on in the temple and all the ritual. So, Let's examine this momentous event that surrounded Christ's death and how it would have played out on a timeline. Now look at the chart I've prepared for you. You should have picked up two handouts tonight. The regular one plus one that took this chart and blew it up to a full page size so you could follow along a little bit better. At the top of this chart is an illustration of how a 24-hour Hebrew day is defined. Notice that a biblical day begins and ends at sunset. Our modern day that uses mechanical clocks as our means of time makes 12 midnight when one day ends and the new day begins, and it never varies. Now, I have arbitrarily chosen the time of 7 p.m. as the moment of darkness when the old day ends, the new day begins, because in the springtime in Israel, that's about the time of sunset, roughly. And I I needed to mark it somehow for the sake of doing a chart. Now, notice the dark bar that I have in each case indicating that this is time of darkness. This is nighttime. Okay. Then, of course, the gray portion is twilight of some sort, whether it's sun rising or sun setting. And then the white portion of each, each of these bars represents daytime, daylight hours. Now, of course, it's very difficult for us moderns to wrap our minds around this ancient way of measuring time and days. Because in essence... The first meal of any new day for a Hebrew or anyone else, as a matter of fact, as far as any records we've ever discovered would indicate, was the evening meal, the nighttime meal, what we would call dinner. You with me? That's the first meal of the day. Why? Because that's when the new day begins. Okay? That's hard to get, isn't it? 
that dinner is their first meal of the new day, because that's when the day changes. So for a Hebrew, the first meal of each new day was dinner. What we call breakfast, the morning meal, is more or less the middle of their 24-hour day. It's the middle meal. What we call lunch is the last meal of the current day cycle. You see how this really goofs up your mind, all right, thinking about this. This is hard. Okay? Our cycle begins in the morning. Their cycle begins at night. It's just flipped upside down. Now, here's what I believe to be the correct timeline. For Yeshua's Last Supper, arrest, crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. Let's go over it very carefully. Abib the 13th, which is not here, not up right now, okay, is the day before Passover. Okay, let's back up this chart for a second. It's the day before Passover, okay? You with me? Day before Passover. Alright. It was on Wednesday, that the 13th, according to my timeline. And again, let me, let me stop. They didn't use the word Wednesday. Okay? This is what we're saying. But I gotta have some way to relate it to you. Alright? It was on Wednesday the 13th, the disciples had that special meal prepared that Christianity labels the Last Supper. Okay? Now as I told you, the last time we met, we will find in the Mishnah Pactrate uh, Pesachim that the Galileans of the Holy Land had adopted a tradition that in Hebrew is called Seodah Maf Shechet. Everybody say that now. No, I'm just teasing. Okay. And it translates to Last Supper. Okay. Now allow me to remind you that in Yeshua's day, the politics were such that the Holy Lands had been divided by Rome into several districts. Okay. The ones we're most familiar with are Judea, Judah, okay, and that was to the south, right, where, um, where Jerusalem was located. Okay. Galilee was up to the north. Of course, that's where Yeshua is from. All right? And Samaria lay in between the two of them. Okay? Further, Judaism had severely fractured. And, and the Judean Jews down here and the Samaritan Jews had each developed some different traditions on a number of religious matters including just how the feasts were to be observed. The Galilean Jews, those who were born and lived up to the north, Yeshua and his disciples, by the way, were all Galileans, Okay, they had established an additional tradition called Seodah Maf Shechet, Last Supper, that the Judean Jews did not recognize. This last supper, as they called it, was about remembering 
that it was indeed not all Hebrews who were in danger from death at God's hand in Egypt, only who? The firstborn sons. That's it. So a special nighttime meal was adopted, whereby this meal would be eaten, and then be eaten on the 13th, and then there would be a 24-hour fast that followed. That's why they called it the Last Supper. Okay, Following the Last Supper, and then the fast, then the next meal they would eat was the Passover meal. Now, there have been a number of essays and books that explain that it was known that there were two Passover seders. Okay, one on Passover Eve, Abib 13th, the day before Passover, Passover, and then the official Passover night meal on Abib 14th. But this is not very good scholarship, and it misses the mark rather significantly. These so-called two Passover seders were in fact the combination of the Last Supper, which was celebrated only by those Galilean Jews, and probably by at least some of the Samaritan Jews, and then the next night, the actual Passover meal. But this same poor scholarship also rather obscures what went on with Jesus and his disciples on those fateful few days. And it ignores that the Judean Jews, and thus the priesthood, centered in Jerusalem, did not join in that additional Aviv the 13th, Last Supper, Passover Seder, as they call it. They didn't, they weren't, they didn't involve themselves in it, because they didn't recognize it. So on Aviv the 13th, Wednesday, by our way of thinking about it, the Seudah Maf Shechet was prepared. However, it wasn't eaten on Abib the 13th. Rather, it was after sundown. After sundown of Abib the 13th that the meal was actually eaten. That is, it was eaten as the first meal of the day of Thursday of Eid the 14th. You following me? Sun goes down, day changes, time for dinner. That's the first meal of the new day. The new day was the 14th, Passover day. So this special meal honoring the firstborn that the Galileans did but not the Judeans, okay, called Last Supper, was actually eaten on Passover, but as the beginning meal of, of Eve the 14th, Passover day. We're all coming along together now, right? All right, follow me closely. Now, this meal called Last Supper is eaten in the first hour of Passover of Eve the 14th. It's here where Yeshua instructs his disciples to commemorate this day by drinking wine that symbolizes his blood that establishes the new covenant and by eating unleavened bread that symbolizes his body to which we will become in union. Note, 
this was not the traditional Passover Seder. That has yet to come. Because that meal is not eaten until the end of the Passover day. Therefore, at the start of the day, on Abib the 14th, Thursday, which is at nighttime, Passover day, the Galilean Last Supper, commemorating the firstborns, was eaten. The next event is that Judas betrays Jesus, and shortly after midnight, our Lord is arrested. It's still Passover day. Okay. Then in the wee hours just before daylight, he's tried and convicted of blasphemy. It's still Passover day. We're still right in this area. After his sentence is confirmed by Pontius Pilate, Jesus is scourged and he's nailed to a Roman cross by Roman soldiers. It's still Passover day. Aviv the 14th. Still that day. At about the moment Jesus expires, roughly 3 p.m. in the afternoon on Passover day, the slaughter of the Passover lambs begins in the temple grounds. Somewhere around a quarter of a million sheep will be killed and their blood collected between the hours of 3 p.m. and 6 p.m. Okay, The job completed as the sun nears the horizon. It's still Passover day. Now, while this is occurring, the women are hurrying to get the Roman soldiers to remove Jesus' corpse from that cross. It's a requirement they must get him buried immediately because otherwise he would lay exposed for two days. Why two days? I'll show you in a minute. Their prayers are answered. Yeshua is entombed before the sun sets. It's still Passover day. What's happening on Passover day? The butchered lambs now are placed in the thousands of collective ovens located all around Jerusalem so that the hundreds of thousands of visiting pilgrims can roast their Passover lambs. It's still Passover day. Shortly after the three stars that become visible only when it's dark enough, Passover day officially ends. And the first day of matzah begins. Aviv the 14th has ended, alright, and Aviv the 15th, what we might call Friday, the first day of unleavened bread, the first day of matzah has begun. What you say? Wait a minute, wait a minute. Where did the Passover Seder go? Where did the Passover meal go? Aren't they supposed to eat it on Passover day? No, they're not. Okay. Much to many people's surprise, the biblical injunction is eat the meal after dark. This means the day has changed. It's not only that the Passover land, it's, it's, Look, they're only supposed to slaughter the lamb on Passover day. They're supposed to prepare it 
on Passover day. But that's not when it's eaten. Okay, that's right. The Passover meal is not eaten on Passover day. It's the first meal of the new day of matzah. Why? Because that's exactly as it was in Egypt. They were still eating the Passover meal, we're told, at around midnight. Which was the wee early hours, the beginning of the day on Aviv 15th, when Yehovah killed all those unprotected firstborns throughout Egypt. Now last week I explained to you that it was Jerome in the 5th century AD who translated the Hebrew scriptural words Seva Pesach and translated it as Passover in English. But this is incorrect and it's misleading. Therefore we get this mental picture along with millions of sermons to back it up that on Pesach, the Lord passed over the Hebrew firstborns, killing only the Egyptian firstborns. While it is true that the Lord passed over the firstborns who obeyed the command to paint the lamb's blood on their doorposts, the problem is that Seba Pesach doesn't mean Passover. It means protective sacrifice. Protective sacrifice. Look, what occurred on Aviv 14th in Egypt was that the Passover lamb was slaughtered and its blood was brushed on the doorposts of the homes. It was the day the protective sacrifice of the lamb, as ordered by God, took place. But it would not be until after dark when the day changed to Aviv the 15th the first day of matzah, that late at night, around midnight, the Lord passed through Egypt, killing all the firstborns who were not protected by the sacrifice of the lamb. So Pesach, which is only the protective sacrifice of the lambs, happened on Aviv the 14th, but the Lord didn't pass over, if you would, the protected Hebrew firstborns until the first hours of the next day, Abib 15th, which is the first day of matzah. Then later, the meal was eaten, and then it turned soon into daytime, still on the same day. Okay, where are we here? Still on the same day. And then they assembled, and they were led out of Egypt. It is the day they left Egypt. The same day that hours earlier they had eaten the lamb as the first meal of that day. That celebrated as the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, what did we learn earlier that was special and different about the first day of matzah? It was a festival Sabbath day. Abid the 15th was a special Sabbath day, a special festival Sabbath day. It had some of the same requirements as the seventh day Shabbat, 
And that handling a human corpse was prohibited on any kind of Sabbath for any kind of purpose. That's why we read in the Gospels there was such a frenzy to get Messiah buried before dark when the day changed from Pesach, Passover, a regular day, to the first day of Matzah, which was a festival Sabbath day. Aviv the 15th was a rather uneventful day. It was Friday. The festival Sabbath to begin matzah. The day ends at sundown. And now it is Saturday, Aviv the 16th. This is the regular weekly seventh day Sabbath. Two kinds of Sabbaths. Festival Sabbath and the seventh, regular seventh day Sabbath that we're all familiar with. Now, I already mentioned that while for the past several centuries, first fruits has been celebrated on the Aviv the 16th as a permanent tradition. In fact, it was only the rabbis who were Pharisees who long ago ordered it done this way as opposed to the way it was done in Jesus' day. And this change occurred after the temple was destroyed in 70 AD when the priesthood had become defunct. Remember now, the Sadducees were the high priests and in charge of the priesthood. So with the end of the temple, when it was destroyed, it was essentially the end of the priesthood. And so the the Sadducees lost a lot of their control over matters of ritual and, and tradition. As a result of this, the Pharisees were able to get their way. And they ordered that rather than first fruits moving around a bit on a calendar, it would henceforth always be a be the 16th that first fruits would be celebrated on. Let me say it again. In Jesus' day, first fruits was the day after the seventh day Shabbat no matter what the calendar date was. It didn't matter. Therefore, in Jesus' era, first fruits was always, always, always the first day of the week. What we call Sunday in, in our modern terminology, right? Why did it always have to be Sunday? Because it, because by Leviticus 23, it was to happen the day after the seventh day Sabbath. Seventh day, boing, back to the first day. Notice that by this timeline, Yeshua has indeed been in the tomb for three nights and for three days, just as the prophecy of Jonah in the belly of the great fish explained. I hope as you can see that this is not at all straightforward. Okay, and that a, a scholar is not a student of the Torah. And to a degree of Jewish tradition, there is no way he can understand how the Passion Week of Yeshua's death played out. After all, the New Testament that was written by Jews assumed that anybody reading these documents would be familiar with Jewish customs and their nuances, and all the political circumstances of that day. 
But for, for right now, I want to move on now, alright, to talk about Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks. So open your Bibles to Deuteronomy 16. Deuteronomy 16. Okay, let's start at verse 9, and we're just going to read three or four verses. I'm going to go 9 through 12. Okay, page 215 if you have the complete Jewish Bible. You are to count seven weeks. You are to begin counting seven weeks from the time you first put your sickle to the standing grain. You are to observe the festival of Shavuot for Adonai your God with a voluntary offering which you are to give in accordance with the degree to which Adonai your God has prospered you. You are to rejoice in the presence of Adonai your God, you, your sons and daughters, male and female slaves, the Levites living in your towns, the foreigners, orphans, widows living among you in the place where Adonai your God will choose to have his name live. Remember that you were a slave in Egypt. Then you will keep and obey these laws. Okay. The festival of Shavuot comes seven weeks, hence the name, the Feast of Weeks, right? from the day of the ceremonial first cutting of the harvest that comes sometime during the overall, that, that cutting comes sometime during the overall springtime festival period of matzah uh, and of uh, Passover matzah and first fruits. Now, the original instruction in the Bible does not give a specific day for this first cutting of the harvest. Okay, There's some wiggle room because it's not known year to year when the first day of the barley harvest will act actually happen. So technically and scripturally, this 50-day period can move around by around a week or so. Now let me reiterate from last week that even though Aviv 16th is called First Fruits and that this first sheaf of barley is waved, remember this? First Fruits does not mark the beginning of the barley harvest. Rather, a sheaf of green, unripened Barley is cut and presented to be waved by the priests at the temple. First fruits, Bikurim, is a pre-harvest ceremony that was made to ask the Lord that when the harvest comes, it's a good one. Now, because we have learned that first fruits can move around on the calendar from year to year, Therefore, so does the summertime festival of Shavuot, since it's dependent, you start counting when that first fruit comes, when you make that first harvest. Technically, technically, one counts 50 days from the day after the seventh day Shabbat that occurs, the day before first fruits, and that tells us when Shavuot, Shavuot occurs. After the temple was destroyed and after the rabbis took over control of Judaism, because they were Pharisees, they decided it would be better for everybody concerned, especially those far away in the diaspora, 
to have a fixed day. Have all these spring, have all these festivals be a fixed day on the calendar. And that's how it remains now to our time. They are fixed days. There are some groups like the Karaites that refuse to go by the modern Jewish calendar of fixed days. They won't do it. Now, another biblical reality is this. Shavuot is another of the pilgrimage festivals. It is the second of the three annual feasts that requires all Hebrew males to journey to the central sanctuary. Starting with David, that sanctuary was in Jerusalem. And they had to go there to make a sacrifice. Since Hebrews soon became scattered over thousands of square miles of the Holy Land and later over millions of square miles of Asia and then the Roman Empire, a moving target for the day of Shavuot was nearly impossible to implement. And depending on where you lived in Asia... Right? Growing, ripening, and harvesting would occur at widely varying times. Therefore, it was necessary in their view that a firm day be decided upon as that 50th day from the first sheaf of barley being waved. So the countdown to Shavuot began each year on the day of Bikurim, first fruits. This was not scripture. This was rabbinic tradition. But it is a practical solution to a very tough problem. Okay, now Christians know Shavuot better as Pentecost. Pentecost is but the Greek translation for the Hebrew Shavuot. Pentecost is known to the church is the day that the Holy Spirit of the Lord came to reside within those who trusted Yeshua as their Messiah. Now it was the day that all those Jews started speaking in tongues, foreign languages. And I've said this on a number of occasions, but as a teacher I guess I get a pass for repeating myself. Pentecost was not a day that was created by Christians to commemorate the coming of the Holy Spirit. Pentecost was already a 1,300-year-old holy day by Yeshua's time. We're reading about it here in Deuteronomy 16, 9 through 12. Pentecost, Shavuot, was a prophetic foreshadow of the coming of the Holy Spirit. And naturally, as all prophecy is 100% accurate and flawless, that's exactly what happened. The Holy Spirit did come on the summertime feast day of Shavuot. Now, while the descending of the Holy Spirit is the Christian reason for the day, the Jewish people see it as something else. In fact, for the Jew, it has a dual purpose. First is that from an agricultural standpoint, the nearly two-month period from the time of the first fruits until the time of Shavuot covers the grain harvesting period of both barley and wheat. 
So while first fruit signals the, the, the harvesting of the barley will begin within a few days or hours, Shavuot signals the end of the wheat harvest. That is, the barley harvest comes around around the time of first fruits and then ends about a month later. And at the proper moment during the second half of that seven week period in between first fruits and Shavuot, the wheat harvesting begins. And then at Shavuot, the end of that seven week period, the wheat harvesting ends. The second meaning of Shavuot for Hebrews is that it is celebrated as that time that Moses received the law on Mount Sinai. The scriptures show us that it was around 50 days after Israel fled Egypt that Moses received the law from God. However, the scriptures do not actually verify that exact amount of time. It's, it's a tradition that it was done in parallel. Now something tells me that this tradition is probably accurate. Right? Because note the amazing connection between Moses receiving the law of God written on stone tablets and then the coming of the Holy Spirit. It is prophetic from Jeremiah that a day will come that God will write his law on the hearts of those who love him. Okay, The New Testament confirms that it was on the day that the Holy Spirit came, Pentecost, Shavuot, that God wrote his law on our hearts. By the way, as long as I'm repeating myself, let me say that God told Moses when he gave them the law at Sinai that the people were to write the law on their own hearts. And this was to be done by means of them thinking on these laws day and night. Then in Jeremiah, the Lord says prophetically that when he renews the giving of the law, this time he is going to write those laws on the hearts of his people. In both cases, the law was to be written on the human heart. It's just that in the first case, the individual was to do it himself. And in the second case, God would do it supernaturally. Now let me also take this occasion to mention that in the biblical era, Old Testament or New, heart does not mean what we think about it today. The heart was the seat of conscious thought in Bible times. It was the human intellect. It was your mind. Later, long after the Bible was closed up, the Greek culture made the heart the seat of human erotic desires and emotions. So when the Bible says heart, when you see the word heart in the Bible, just substitute the word mind. Because that is what it meant then, and that's what it ought to mean to us now. Now, what else is revealing about Shavuot, Pentecost, is its uniquely inclusive nature. Israel is told to include males, females, slaves, free, Levites, orphans, widows, even strangers, ger, G-E-R, ger. 
Ger are non-Hebrews, Gentiles, who have decided to bond themselves to Israel, but they haven't been circumcised. That is, those who may be included in the meaning of Shavuot, think about this now, in the meaning of Pentecost, do not have to become official Hebrews by means of a Brit Milah, the circumcision ceremony. Isn't that an interesting parallel to the New Testament situation that those who wish to call Yeshua their Lord can be either Hebrews or non-Hebrews, but they must bond themselves to Israel, as Paul says, be grafted in. How much more graphic can you get as to your relationship to Israel than to be grafted into it? Talk about attached. But that bonding does not mean that a ger, a foreigner, a non-Hebrew, need a circumcision ceremony that makes them, us, as believers, official, physical Hebrews. We can remain Gentiles and still be a part of Israel on a spiritual level, just as the scenario is in Deuteronomy in the Torah. Now let's move on now to Moses' exposition of the regulations concerning the Feast of Tabernacles. Sukkot. Now to that end, let's read a few more verses of Deuteronomy 16. So pick your Bibles back up again, and we're going to read Deuteronomy 16, 13 through 17. Deuteronomy 16, 13 through 17. You are to keep the festival of Sukkot for seven days after you have gathered the produce of your threshing floor and winepress. Rejoice at your festival, you, your sons and daughters, your male and female slaves, the Levites and the foreigners, the gear, the orphans and the widows living among you. For seven days you are to keep the festival for Adonai your God in the place Adonai your God will choose because Adonai your God will bless you and all your crops, and in all your work, so be full of joy. Three times a year, all of your men are to appear in the presence of Adonai, your God, in the place which he will choose. The festival of Matzah, the festival of Shavuot, the festival of Sukkot. They are not to show up before Adonai empty-handed, but every man is to give what he can in accordance with the blessing of Adonai, your God, has given to you. Now, each of the festivals is known by a handful of common names. The festival of Sukkot is certainly no different. Sukkot, which is the Hebrew, is also known as the Feast of Booths, also known as the Feast of Ingathering, also known as the Feast of Tabernacles, each of these seven festivals also reflects a certain kind of tone, ranging from somberness and sobriety all the way to unbounded, unfettered joy. As an example, the Feast of First Fruits represents a certain anxiety and anticipation. A bit of uncertainty is around and in what the outcome of the current year's harvest just might be. 
So the focus of first fruits is to wave that sheaf of green, unripened, barley before the Lord, asking him that they would have a good harvest. The Feast of Weeks, Shavuot, reflects a tone of rest and relief. The barley and the wheat harvests are over, and the results, hopefully good, are now known. The feverish pace of the field work to bring in that harvest before it spoils, now they can relax for a time. Sukkot, though, is unmitigated joy. In fact, yet another name for this festival is the time of our rejoicing. Let's see why. This fall season festival, Sukkot, is the third and final of the three pilgrimage festivals. We've had the Feast of Matzah in the spring, the Feast of Shavuot in the summer, now the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall, whereby all the Hebrew males have to make a journey to the central sanctuary for praise and worship of Yehovah that necessarily involves a sacrifice. And just as the Feast of Matzah begins on a regular and steady calendar date, so does Sukkot. Just as the Feast of Matzah is a seven-day feast, so is Sukkot. And just as the first and last days of the Feast of Matzah are dedicated, or rather declared, as festival Sabbaths, those special Sabbaths, so are the first and the last days of the Feast of Sukkot declared as those special, one of those special festival Sabbaths, not the seventh-day Sabbath, the special ones that are added. The Feast of Tabernacles is to begin each year on Tishri the 15th. Tishri is the seventh month of the Hebrew religious calendar. But Tishri is also the first month of the Hebrew civil calendar. Therefore, the first day of Tishri is Jewish New Year. Now this agricultural based holy day celebrates the end of the threshing of the grains. It marks the time when the separation this gets really cool. This marks the time when the separation of the wheat from the chaff is coming to a close. It also marks the time when the vineyard harvest is complete and the winemaking is ended and the new wine is ready. And like Shavuot, those invited to participate and benefit from the Feast of Tabernacles includes Hebrews and non-Hebrews from all classes of folks who have attached themselves to Israel's relationship with the God of Israel. Let me close out this section of Deuteronomy 16 on the three pilgrimage festivals by quickly showing you the parallel between all these festivals mentioned and the prophetic ministries of Jesus that they represented. Passover represented Yeshua's substitutionary death, the protective sacrifice. And his blood protects 
all who have faith in what he has done, protects all who have faith in what he has done from eternal death, the hand of the Father. He shed his blood on Passover day. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, Matzah, is that time when Christ went into the tomb without sin, without leavening. And his body didn't decay. It was the day that his sacrificial death and burial brought the release of all his followers from the power of evil and sin. Christ was put into the tomb to begin the first day of matzah. First fruits represents that day when the first of what would be harvested in the near future was lifted up and waved before the Father. It's that day when with anxiety and anticipation, Christ, who was that green sheaf of barley, who was cut from the field, was the hope and the forerunner of a bountiful harvest of believers. Yet he was not the first of the actual harvest. He was the forerunner of it. The actual harvest was yet to come. Christ arose on the feast of first fruits. Now this ought to give us chills. The entire sequence of his death, burial, and resurrection occurred precisely on the appropriate biblical feast days. But that's not all. Fifty days later, on Pentecost, the feast of Shavuot, the Lord did what? He sent his Holy Spirit to dwell within men. The Lord harvested his believers. They were his. They were put away for safekeeping. Where no one and nothing could forcefully take them, take us away from him. But you know what? There's more harvesting yet to come. The high holy days of the Feast of Trumpets and of Yom Kippur, which we have discussed in other lessons, represents Yeshua HaMashiach coming again, coming for that second time, and this time, not as the sacrificial lamb, but coming in great power and glory to bring the world to its knees, cutting down the evil and laying low the rebels. The Feast of Tabernacles, or more appropriately as it's known, the Feast of the Ingathering, is the entry into the thousand-year reign of Christ, the millennium. Now, I'm not going to go into all the details today, but just let me point out the amazing parallels between the focal point and the grand finale of the Feast of Sukkot, which is the water libation ceremony at the altar of burnt offering. The earthly purpose for this particular event, this water libation event, was to ask God to bring rain to the land, to water the crops. In the final moments of the final biblical feast of each year, the Feast of Sukkot, 
The closing event every year is that seven trumpets were blown three times for a total of 21 trumpet blasts. And this was done as a golden pitcher of water from the spring of Siloam is brought by the high priest through the aptly named water gate of the Temple Mount. And then the water is poured out from the golden preacher, a golden pitcher, while the people of Jerusalem, those pilgrims, say in unison, God save us now. These 21 trumpet blasts represent the three series of seven final judgments that will be rained down upon the world in man's final hours. After those 21 judgments, it's finished. The history of man as we know it is over. Yeshua HaMashiach is now in total control of a world that has not one single rebel. Not one single person who will be alive at that moment doesn't know the Lord and doesn't bow down to Him. And so it will remain for a thousand years. Even more, the commemoration of that day is going to continue forever. We are told in Zechariah, Zechariah, that every year, for time unmeasured, the Feast of Sukkot will happen. And it will happen including that culminating event that I just told you about, the water libation ceremony. Listen to Zechariah 14, 16. Then every one that survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths, keep Sukkot. And if any of the families of the earth don't go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain for them. We'll finish up chapter 16 next week.